Please turn with me in the words of eternal life to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, this morning we're continuing our series through John 3 and 4, which Gary laid a foundation for in John 1 and 2. And today we're going to be focusing on the text of verses 16 through 21, John 3, 16 through 21, and let's read it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You may be seated. Children, you can be dismissed at this time to Children's Church. As they go, allow me to pray for us this morning as we receive the food of the Word of God. Father, we're grateful for this time to again come together as your people called out of the world and saved by the only salvation that there is, what is available in Christ. His death, his resurrection, his victory over sin and the grave. And he offers that freely, along with his righteousness, positive merit, so that we can be acceptable in your sight, so that we can be adopted as your children, O great Father. And so, Lord, as we come to you this morning to receive the word, to be taught, to be enlightened to see your glory in a fresh way. I pray that you would do just that. Do the work in our hearts that we cannot do. Prepare our hearts as soil that is ready to receive the seed of your truth so that it might grow and flourish and produce fruit. Fruit for the glory of your name. Please empower this lisping, stammering tongue to speak the word of life and make it effective in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So John three sixteen through 21, and of course, recognizing John three sixteen, all of us probably do. How many have memorized John three sixteen at some point in their life? Okay, just about everybody in the room. One of the most commonly known verses, and because it's so common, because it's so familiar to us, we have a couple of dangers that are present as we come to this text. And so I want to give us two cautions. The first caution is that this text is dangerous for us because it's so familiar, it could tempt us to stop thinking. So instead of thinking about the substance, instead of thinking about the content of this truth, this glorious truth that God has given his son so that the world might come to him and receive life instead of condemnation, 
we, we instead could be thinking about, you know, sometime in our past, in our childhood, what was going on in a classroom in Iwana, and, uh, and things like that. And, and we stop thinking about the text itself. We stop thinking about the Word of God. And so familiarity could cause a problem. Another thing that could be a problem for us is that we know this verse so well, but what comes before it? And what comes after it? What is the context into which this verse is sandwiched? What is the message, the bigger picture that John is teaching? What is the movement of the text that is supposed to lead us to a conclusion? And so we want to make sure that we see this verse within its context, in its place, in the bigger picture, the greater narrative of the story. So, last week, just a little recap for us, Jesus revealed to Nicodemus that he must be born again because no one can see or enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born over, born from above, born of the Spirit of God. So this rebirth is a supernatural work of God. It's not something you and I can conjure up within ourselves because dead people can't bring themselves to life. And so it is the work of God. And because it's the work of God, a supernatural work, an invisible work, it remains somewhat mysterious. We don't see the, the regeneration of God taking place in someone's heart. It's like the wind, as Jesus said in verse 8. The wind, we don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but we hear its sound. We see some of the effects And so that's kind of what we're going to focus on this morning, the effects of the wind, the effects of God's work of regeneration in the heart of man. Regeneration results in conversion, that is, faith and repentance. Therefore, faith is our spiritual birthmark. The nature of this being reborn is a spiritual nature. It's a birth into spiritual life, the life of Christ, and so Faith is the birthmark of this rebirth. Verses 14 and 15 left off with um, Jesus presenting himself as the Son of Man who is to be lifted up on the cross, just as the serpent was lifted up in Moses' day for the salvation of those who, in the wilderness of God's judgment, were to look to the salvation provided and believe in it. And so that's where we find ourselves today, figuring out more about what this object of faith is. Who is this Son of Man, and what is the purpose of God in doing so? So the object of our faith is very simple. It is the Son of God Himself. The Son of God is the only object, the only thing that we can place our faith in and have hope of eternal life. The evangelist John here tells us, We see the word for at the beginning of verse 16, for, for this reason, this is why, this is how it's taking place. This is the provision for eternal life. And when we read this, we we often say, we often put the emphasis on so. You may have heard people do this. You may receive it this way when you hear it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And while it's true that the affection of God, the love of God for his people, for those he is redeeming out of the world, is incredible. It's it's unfathomable in its depth. But that's not what this text is particularly saying. 
And so what is being said here is not that God so loved the world, but so is simply a matter of fact. It's a statement. God loved the world. Some of your Bibles may have this translation. God loved the world in this way. This is how God loved the world, by giving his only son. The, what about the world? The world is a theme in the book of John. It's a theme that's more prevalent here in this gospel than anywhere else in the New Testament. He uses the word 78 times in this book. And so this is an important question. It's probably a natural question when you come to this verse. God loved the world. Well, what is the world? Or who is he talking about? Literally, it is the Greek word cosmos, which sounds like cosmos, right? Uh, It sounds like the creation, and that is exactly what it is. It is the order, the ornament of the world, the things that God has made, his handiwork. In this context, however, we see a little bit clearer that it is not just the creation in general. It's not the universe. It is God's specific creation of humanity, and especially a humanity that has fallen into sin. It's not a humanity that recognizes the beauty and the worth of God and praises that and glorifies that. It's a humanity that has rejected that. That is why there's a need for him to send his son. So these are people in opposition to God. One commentator says, The sum of the divine creation, which has been shattered by the fall, which stands under the judgment of God, and in which Christ Jesus appears as the Redeemer. This is the world. God loved this world, and he gave his son. John fifteen eighteen. if the world hates you, here's another use of the world in John, Jesus speaking, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me first. And so the world is the sum of the human creation that rejects and opposes God. And so this is the picture. God is looking at the fallen world. It's kind of a snapshot in time as God is working out this plan of redemption. He looks at the fallen world. He sees en masse humanity rejecting him, willfully disobeying his commands, disregarding his glory, exchanging the truth for a lie, and obscuring the image, his image that he placed in them beneath self-righteousness and idolatry. And out of love, motivated by love, God sends his own son into the world to pay the penalty for their sin. To make a way of salvation for them. This is consistent with what we know of the disposition of God in redemptive history. Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is who God is. Jonah knew that. Remember when he was supposed to go to the Ninevites to tell them, To repent, turn from your sin? He didn't want to because he knew that this is who God was. He didn't want to see them receive mercy from God. He wanted them to receive condemnation for their transgression. They were his enemies. And he didn't want them to receive the same mercy that he had received. This is who God is. Carson's says, more than any New Testament writer, John develops a theology of the love relations between the Father and Son and makes it clear that as applied to human beings, the love of God is not the consequence of their loveliness, but of the sublime truth that God is love. 
And so this love that motivates God to send his own son into the world to be a sacrifice for his own enemies, this is a love that flows from the Trinitarian love that God has among the persons of the, of the Godhead. It flows out of that love, and God shares that love with mankind, which is an amazing reality. And let's appreciate this costly love, especially as we think about Father's Day. You know the relationship that you have with your children. You know the love and the joy that is there. And can you imagine for a moment giving your child to be sacrificed for the sake of your enemies? People who hate you, who abuse you, who use you for their gain. Can you imagine giving up your own beloved child for their sake? But God did that. It, it calls us back to the picture of this with Abraham and Isaac. Abraham called to sacrifice his only son. Which, of course, God preserved his son, kept his promises. But God did sacrifice his own son, his one and only son of God. He gave him for us. And the son humbled himself willingly and took on flesh, became a servant, entered into our fallen, wretched, broken world and suffered like one of us and suffered at the hands of evil men as someone who's innocent taking on the guilt that was not his and dying, suffering the consequence, the wrath of God in our place. We know this from Romans 5, 8, another familiar verse. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing lovely about us. There was no initiative in us that made God say, oh, that person's actually pretty good. I think I'm going to send my son to kind of just finish the work that they've begun. There was nothing desirable in us. We were completely defined by our offense to God. So this sending of God's Son into the world is, is a broad, general initiative. It is, uh, there's no clear distinction at this point as to who particularly will receive the love of God in this way. But the invitation is open to whoever will believe, whoever will believe. God's love, uh, as, as the nation of Israel saw this taking place, as they heard the words of Christ, they may have thought uh, that God's love was just limited to their nation, that there was an ethnic um, reality and limitation to the love of God, that it was only for them. Among all the peoples of the world, they were the blessed ones. They were the chosen ones. And we know that that was the case. But that was not ultimately the purpose of God. Ultimately, the purpose of God was to bring about a redeemer so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through that one nation. And now that's happening. And there's no limitation. There's no, there's no social or ethnic limitation as to who can come to Christ with faith. And so the love of God is displayed to the world in a provision that's made, his own son going to the cross, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. As we continue on in verse 17, 17 confirms God's loving purpose in sending his son. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, this is interesting. God did not send Jesus to be a judge, to condemn. The word condemn and and the word judge in this text, they're, they're basically interchangeable. They are the same Greek root And so to judge is to condemn, and to condemn is to judge. The the point being that it's a negative judgment. That's why the word condemn is often used. But verse 17 tells us that Christ didn't come to judge or to condemn the world. Can't we think? We can think of an explicit statement of Christ that he came to judge. We can also think of what he did while he was here on this earth. Think about his interaction with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. For their hypocrisy, he certainly offered judgment and scathing condemnation of their hypocrisy. Calling them children of their father, the devil. Okay, so he certainly practiced judgment. So what's being said here? How is Christ not coming to judge? Well, the reality is found uh, in verse 18. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus didn't have to come and and specifically say who is and who is not judged and condemned. All he had to do was come and by the very choice of belief or unbelief, unbelief specifically, a man is condemned. So Jesus didn't have to actively go out of his way to condemn anybody. Their response to Christ offered condemnation. He will be the judge one day. Of course, we know that God has given to the Son the right and the authority to judge. And he will come in holiness and in purity with eyes of blazing fire, with a a sword protruding from his mouth. And he will judge the great and the small, the living and the dead. But in his incarnation, in his first coming, he did not come primarily to judge He came to seek and to save the lost. So the holy judge himself took the punishment of the guilty criminal so he wouldn't perish. But which criminals, right? Which criminals? And it's a natural question for us to ask. And that's something that John leads us to. Whereas there is this broad general declaration that God has loved the world and has sent his son to make provision for sinners to be saved, who will be saved? And now we start to see that there are two groups of people identified here because not everybody receives the loving gift of God's son and the freedom and the life that he brings. The Bible doesn't teach universalism anywhere else. That is that all men Regardless of how they respond, regardless of what they do, regardless of faith, all men will be saved. That idea exists. It exists in liberal Christianity. It exists in the minds of those who wish to uh, appease their conscience without knowing the truth. So the exclusivity of faith. There is an ultimatum here that we see John give. And an ultimatum is a final demand or a statement of terms that if rejected results in retaliation or a breakdown of relations. We're not unfamiliar with the concept. We've experienced it, some of us in our employment. 
For example, an employee may demand a pay raise from their employer or else they'll go on strike. That's an ultimatum. Either you give me this raise or I'm going to stop working and being productive for you. The employer then in turn might demand of his employee that he come back to work or he'll be fired. He'll lose his job. Either way, there's an ultimatum and there's a consequence for not meeting the demands. Many parents have given their kids this ultimatum. You will eat what's on your plate or you will go to bed hungry. Okay? Some of your parents would never do that. Some of your parents are like, yes, amen. Of course, you know, an hour later, the kid is on the couch munching cookies, so probably didn't work so well. But we like to do this, and we think it's going to be effective. You will do this or else this is the consequence, this is the result. And we see such an ultimatum here in John. The consequence of rejecting the demand is far greater than physical hunger and the loss of a job. It is eternal, and it is the cost of one's soul. So the ultimatum, there is one way to God, and that is through his son. Now, Eastern religions and those who are, you know, call themselves maybe religiously open-minded, they might be willing to, to take Jesus and tack him on to the list of deities, to add him to their, their self-righteousness, their works they think they can behave well enough to appease God. They might add him to their good luck charms to cover all the bases. But that is not what God demands. There is one solution for human guilt before God, and Christ is not part of that solution. He's not one of many solutions. He is the only solution. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul says in 1 Timothy, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. There is only one go-between. There is only one who can reconcile the broken relationship that sin has, has destroyed between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So here is the ultimatum. God has provided the means for your salvation. It is the lamb's sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. You can either believe in him and have eternal life, or you can reject him and be condemned. How will you respond? So we see here the Son of God simultaneously by two groups of people received and rejected. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So now instead of the world as a whole, the world holistically in a general sense, we see John zeroing in now on the response And the response defines two groups of people. Those who are perishing, those who are condemned, and those who have eternal life and are not condemned. First, the first group, condemned, perishing. Condemnation is a legal term. It's a judicial term. That is that this individual is found guilty of a crime and thereby sentenced to a just penalty for the crime, condemned 
as a criminal. And then also we see in verse 16, to perish. What does it mean to perish? The details of perishing are not specifically fleshed out here, but we can clearly see that it's not good. Elsewhere, we see the definition of of those who perish like this. It is to lose, to be destroyed, to exist in eternal unquenchable fire, eternal torment, to be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But thankfully, there's an alternative. The second group receives, instead of condemnation, eternal life. And eternal life, we sometimes gloss over. We know it's a good thing, right? And we know that, that it has a, a quantitative uh, quality, right? It, it is eternal. It's everlasting life with God. But more than quantity, it is quality. It is joy. It is real meaning and purpose. We are brought back to the purpose God made us for. It is satisfaction in him that is peace through all the storms of life. It is intimate, loving relationship with God in his favor. All the promises of God for us, they find their yes in Christ. Hope in all the temporary sufferings of this life, not destruction, not guilty judgment, not the penalty for sin. It is life, an abundant life. Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know God. Are you experiencing eternal life now? So what's the distinguishing factor between these two groups? What, what causes one group to receive condemnation and the other group to receive eternal life? The distinguishing factor is believing. It is faith. Whoever believes will not perish, but will have eternal life. Whoever does not believe is condemned. Now, there are many who will not believe. There are many who don't believe. We see from Scripture, we see empirical evidence that there are many who are rejecting the offer of the gospel. It says right here, God is loving. Out of love, he gave his son for the salvation of the world. So why are there so many people who reject the loving offer of salvation from God? Why would anyone choose condemnation over eternal life? You know, if you're weighing the two options, there seems like, it seems like there's a pretty clear choice, right? Well, it's not that this is an intellectual problem. It's not that they just don't get what's better. They just don't want what's better. There is a moral problem here, a problem of the will. Verse 19 gives us another grand statement of the condition of the world apart from God's grace. And it says, this is the judgment. King James says, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and people loved darkness, loved darkness. Not just hid and stayed in darkness. They loved it. Same word used as God loving the world. People loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. 
And so this is the condition, the universal status of humanity. They don't love the light. They don't want to come to the light. They want to remain in darkness because they love it. They want to remain in the rejection of God, the rejection of his glory. And in doing so, they reject their own salvation. John uses this metaphor of light and darkness. The light is none other than Christ himself. We saw it in chapter 1 of John. We see it in chapters 8 and 9 of John. Christ says he is the light of the world, and the light shines into the darkness. It is his work, it is his message, it is the good news of the gospel, it is the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness shining, piercing into the darkness. It's the revelation of the holy God. What then, in contrast, is the darkness? The darkness, this is not simply, you know, this isn't Star Wars, okay? It's not simply good versus evil, one side versus the other. Darkness is the absence of light. Darkness is, is, a, is a state or a place where evil flourishes. Darkness is a place of secrecy. It's, it's the back alley where the street lamps can't illuminate And it's a place where evil grows and thrives. Now, does that mean that all sin is done in secret? Does it mean that that the people who reject Christ are, are always hiding their sin? They're keeping it out of the public eye? Of course not. What month are we in, according to the calendar? People are flaunting their sin. People are flaunting their evil deeds in the public square because the public square is shrouded in darkness. And those who dwell there and continue to reject God and his glory, they love their sin. They love the darkness and they approve of those who do it. And they keep patting each other on the back and promoting and pushing one another further into their own condemnation. They love the darkness and hate the light. It's an expression of the nature of fallen men like we see in Romans 1. They suppress the truth. They hold it down as if to drown it under the surface of the water. Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. For although they knew God, they can clearly see him in creation. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became empty, futile, worthless in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. They worshiped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And Romans continues on in chapter 3 to confirm their state. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the universal state of humanity apart from Christ, apart from God's grace. Light has come into the world, but they loved the darkness because their deeds were evil. So the reality is, this is not an intellectual problem. This is not a simple weighing of the option and making the wrong choice over and over again. Their will, what they want, what they desire, the Bible teaches us, is absolutely in bondage, enslaved to sin so that they keep choosing to reject God and his glory. He will not come to the light.
apart from the intervention of God. Apart from regeneration, a new birth into new life with a new heart, a new will, new desires. Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh, someone outside of Christ, all they are is flesh. All they are is the old nature. There is no new nature. That person, that mind does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's an impossibility. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Jesus himself later in John chapter 6, there are some of you who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And this reality, this impossibility of salvation, of of believing in the Son of God, draws us back to the importance, the essential foundation of Christ showing Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be made alive in spirit. Without the supernatural work of God in regeneration, there would be no conversion, no belief in Christ. Regeneration is this new covenant promise that Josh referenced last week from Ezekiel 36. It is the heart of flesh replacing the heart of stone. It is the new nature with new desires, affections for God and his glory and his will. It is a liberated will to desire and to do what God commands, ultimately here, faith, to believe in Christ. 1 John 5, 1 confirms this necessity, this reality of new birth producing belief. Everyone who believes, John says, that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, everyone who believes in him has been born of God. So the believing is the evidence that one has been born into new life. Regeneration results in conversion. Unless you are born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. The words of Christ and Nicodemus become clearer here in our necessity, our, our dependence on God to make us able to respond in faith. Here's another example from 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. Paul is speaking of the gospel being preached, and he, he, he calls the gospel simply Christ crucified. He says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And what is Christ crucified to the Jews? A stumbling block. What is it to Gentiles, to the Greeks? Foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now what happens between those two groups of people who are responding to the message of Christ crucified? What happens to the one who receives this broad, general, affectionate call Turn from your sin and come to Christ. Believe in Christ for your salvation. And they reject it. It's a stumbling block that the Jews trip over. And it's foolishness 
It's worthless to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, there is a calling that takes place that is more than just the broadcasting of the news of the gospel. It is a calling that is not just affectionate, it is effective. It accomplishes the purpose of God and that individual responds to the call in faith and believes. It is the sovereign choosing of God. We see in Romans 8, those who he predestined to be his children, he also called. Here is the calling. And that call will be effective. The people who are called here will respond to the call in faith. Those who he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. And so we see the sovereign work of God in salvation that is absolutely necessary if anyone is to come to faith in Christ. But the question, of course, then is, is God to blame then? Is God at fault for those who don't respond in faith? For those who continue in their unbelief because God has not produced regeneration in them? They are not born again, born from above. This is the question of Romans 9. And we've been in Romans recently. I don't want you to be uh, to check out because you're sick of Romans. Please never say you're sick of Romans. But Romans 9, 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Here's the question that essentially we're asking when we come to this group of people who rejects Christ and say, why? Why are they rejecting Christ? And is God to blame because he didn't sovereignly initiate their belief? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unjust? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God, according to his word, reserves the sovereign right to have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. It's his choice. By the way, it's not unjust because God is not taking sinners who reject him and forcing them to continue in their unbelief. John here in verses 16 through 21, John is clear that those, are, are, those who reject Christ are guilty of their own accord. They have chosen to reject the Son of God. They have chosen unbelief and that condemns them, okay? So God doesn't need to make anyone continue in rebellion so that they reject Christ. That individual is free to choose whatever he wants. The problem is what he wants in his natural fallen state is never Christ. It's never the glory of God. It's never repenting of sin. It is loving darkness. An example of human responsibility, human will acting according to what it wants and the sovereign will of God superseding human activity, using those things for his purposes, is Joseph's brothers. Remember Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery. First wanting to kill him, he's spared from death and sold into slavery. Joseph's brothers did exactly what they wanted to do. God didn't have to compel them against their will to, to, to harm Joseph. They did exactly what they wanted to do. 
God sovereignly used that to bring about his purposes. Later, Genesis, Joseph says, you meant it for evil. Indeed, you meant it, and you did it. You made the choice of your own will to do evil to me, but God meant it for good with his sovereign purposes. So we see sovereign will of God, human responsibility, both, though there's some mystery that remains, both present, both clear in Scripture. And so, if we look at it this way, consider, consider all of humanity, this fallen world, all of us rejecting God, all of us trading in the truth for a lie, all of us rejecting his worth. We're, we're all in the same basket. Let's call it the basket of deplorables. Except in this case, it's true. All of us. It's amazing grace that any of us are plucked out and saved from being thrown into the fire of destruction. All of us are guilty, equally guilty against God, and it would be just and right for him to exact justice. But in mercy, he saves many. The light has come into the world to illuminate and expel the darkness, and many, God opens their eyes to receive that. And the rest, the ones who reject, reject of their own will and volition, they are guilty for that. And they don't receive injustice. They receive justice. One group receives mercy. The other receives justice, not injustice. All of us formerly hid in the darkness so that our evil deeds wouldn't be exposed. When, as Ephesians says, we were by very nature the children of wrath. That was all of us at one point. But God has and still is opening up many eyes to see the glory and the beauty and the sufficiency and the necessity of Christ crucified and are trusting him for eternal life. Finally, we see the evidence of faith. There's some evidence of faith, and you see the progression. There is first rebirth. There, there is a new man created, the new creation that is able to see and love and know and enjoy God, to be, to be able to respond to Christ in faith, to be able to turn from sin, to see and say sin, to say the same thing God says about sin, to confess. And then that produces action, right? There's a change of heart. There is believing in Christ. And then there's a new life that's actually functionally lived out. And so that's what we see some evidence of now in verses 20 and 21. For everyone who does wicked things, still continuing with the metaphor of light and darkness, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So new birth is verified by faith and faith is verified by certain conduct, certain action. First of all, the unbeliever. The unbeliever hates the light, stays away from the light, so that his deeds won't be exposed. The light threatens to expose the works of darkness in which he wishes to continue. He wants to preserve those things as long as he can and enjoy his sin. And 
Christ comes, and just the fact that Christ comes implies that sinners need a Savior, that there's something wrong with them, there's a brokenness that needs to be healed. And so the gospel is always going to be intrinsically offensive to sinners. Because before the gospel can be the good news that God saves you and gives eternal life, you must recognize the bad news of the gospel that you are a sinner in need of a savior. You are headed for condemnation unless something changes. So the gospel is by itself intrinsically offensive. And as much as we try to maybe change the language or present it in a different way that's, that's less um, offensive, it's always going to be, by its very nature, offensive. Because it confronts, it convicts. So, this first group of people, the wicked, the unbeliever, they hide in darkness because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. You don't go to your company, to a meeting, company meeting, and give a presentation on how you're embezzling funds, right? You don't expose that. You don't want to be caught. You want to be able to continue doing it and enjoying the fruit of it. You don't speed when there's a police officer following you, right? Most of us. Um, It's not wise. You're going to get a penalty, right? There's going to be a ticket coming. So, So it's natural for us to want to hide and isolate and keep ourselves in the darkness so that our evil deeds won't be exposed especially exposed to the light of the judge who sees every thought and intent of our heart. So the wicked don't love the light. They love the darkness. They want to preserve their sin as long as possible. The other group, the believer, now the contrast, does what is true, lives according to the truth and the righteousness revealed in Christ. There's no shame or guilt motivating him to stay and remain isolated and hidden in the darkness. Instead, he runs with joy to the light, knowing that there is his freedom and his forgiveness. Now, the believer is not simply a superior person to the unbeliever in some way, intellectually, morally, otherwise. The believer, notice what it says at the end of verse 21. Why does he come to the light? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's not about him. It's not some convoluted, you know, prideful self-righteousness. Look at what I can do. Look how much better I am than that alternative group, the people who reject Christ. It is to elevate and magnify the glory and the grace of God. Carson says, the lover of light does not prance forward to parade his wares with cocky self-righteousness, but comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. And we recognize that this is the reality for every believer, for everyone who has been snatched out of darkness and brought into the light, saved from perishing, saved from condemnation, The life that we live now, we live by faith in the Son of God. We can confess that with Paul. And the works that we do reflect the righteousness that God has given to us positionally. Jesus has given us his righteousness to make us acceptable to God. 
And he's also transforming us so that we produce more righteousness, so that we live like Christ. We are growing in that. That is part of eternal life. We are becoming like our Savior. But it's not something we do of our own strength. It's not something we do of our own, uh, for our own glory. It is something that we do to magnify the glory and the grace of God, knowing that it is God who is working in us, both giving us the desire to do what is good and the ability to do what is good. And so ultimately, we're displaying for the world in the righteous acts, the righteous conducts that we pursue, God is glorious. Look at the power of God in my life. Look at the grace of God in my life. And it's to draw others' attention to him. Ezekiel 36, 27. This is not just get out of hell. This is not just you are righteous in my sight, the end. It doesn't matter how you live. Back to the new covenant. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There's a real transformation that takes place in the life of a true believer. And their conduct reflects it. There are too many people who buy into the idea that faith in Christ, salvation, is simply intellectual assent. If I agree with this statement that God has sent his son to save sinners, then I'm fine. It doesn't matter what my life reflects. It doesn't matter what I'm motivated to pursue. It doesn't matter what my priorities are. It doesn't matter that there's love for God in my heart or love for the people of God. I'm good to go because I've agreed with this statement. That is not what faith is. That's not what biblical regeneration and conversion produce. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous have no fear of judgment because the works of God in them is producing a verification of faith. God working in and through me shows me that I have faith and shows me that I have the new birth of the Spirit. As we close, a couple of things I want to mention just very simply you know, because of the, the simplicity of the text in its presentation of essentially the gospel. Here is Christ. Here is, here is God's provision for salvation. How will you respond? You can receive him by faith, by believing, or you can reject him. And so a charge for both categories of people who sit in this room, those who have received Christ by faith, those who have yet to receive Christ by faith still walking in darkness. 1 John 3, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. That is the produce of new birth. As he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, on the other hand, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, to be clear, 
caveat that I think is important. As we examine our lives, we recognize all of us who are in Christ, we are not perfect. We still sin. We still fail to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We still fail to love our enemies, to love our neighbors. We still fail not to be selfish, self-seeking at times. And so we recognize that none of us are doing this perfectly. But the point is, the distinction is, what is the daily pattern of our life? What does our conduct betray? What does it look like? Does it look like a practice of sinning? Does it look like a consistent, a consistent pattern of sin? Or is there faith in Christ that's been produced by a new life? A new life that loves God, that wants to please God, that fights against the sin and temptation that we still face? The gospel has been presented, and the ultimatum still stands. God sent his son into the world, his own son, for the sake of his enemies, to satisfy his wrath, his just wrath against sin. How will you respond to the son of God? If you're still hiding in the darkness, making a practice of sinning, come to the light. What more can I say? Come to the light. This is the message of the gospel. This is what Jesus said. Repent, turn away from your sin, and believe. Believe in Christ, that he is sufficient. For the believer, a couple of things. Also from 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. How miraculous is that? How paradoxical is that? We who were the enemies of God, hating him, spurning him at every chance we got, disregarding his glory, worshiping ourselves in idolatry instead of the creator. He has given us a love that has been effective, a love that has drawn us into new life and relationship with him and is transforming us day by day. Marvel at the new birth that you have in Christ. Don't ever get tired of it. Don't don't think that it's something that just happened in the past and it's old news and it's insignificant. It means everything. You once loved the darkness and now you're walking in marvelous light. There's no condemnation for you in Christ. The atonement of Christ on your behalf is effective. There's no wrath left for you to bear. And just as you first believed in him, continue to persevere in faith, pursuing righteousness. I appreciate the, uh, the words of the hymn that we sing, He Will Hold Me Fast. Talking about the, the magnificent cost of the death of the Son of God. He'll not let my soul be lost. He will hold me fast. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. He's not gonna, the cost that he paid to make salvation possible, the gift of his own Son dying in the place of sinners, that's not going to be revoked. That's not going to be ineffective. That's not going to be worthless. He will accomplish salvation. Also, believer, you owe nothing to the flesh. So when you're tempted to revert to that old behavior of hiding in the darkness, 
of, of keeping your sin secret because you don't want anyone to find out. You don't want it to be exposed. That is not the pattern of one who believes in Christ. Come to the light and confess. We are those who live in the light of Christ with one another in community. Don't avoid the light by avoiding the words of Christ or the people in whom Christ dwells by his spirit. And don't think you have to wait until heaven to start enjoying eternal life. Sometimes we think it's only off in the distance somewhere. But as we understand the quality of life that we have, all the promises of God, the hope of salvation, hope that God is working in every trial, in every suffering for our good, Live in that light. Delight in the Son of God and walk in His light, knowing that the good works you do are proof of the life of God in you and displays His grace and glory to those around you. Let's pray. Father, I pray again, Lord, that you would just make your word effective in us by your Spirit who gives us illumination to understand it who applies it to our hearts, who makes it useful. I pray that you would convict. Convict unbelievers of their sin, their violation of your law, your commands, their offense to your holiness. Show them your love in sending your own son to pay the penalty for the sin that they've committed that you are willing to erase the debt that they owe and give them eternal life. Father, I pray that you would do the work of regeneration, creating new life where there was only death and bringing about faith and repentance. And that as we grow in the life of faith and persevere in faith, as we pursue righteousness, you would be glorified in the visible work that you're doing to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen.